I think most of you have seen the epic film. There is a small man in a brown robe and a tonsure, standing in front an elaborate array of officials in their colorful bright red robes and their ermine trim. He creates a pretty good contrast. The 21-year-old emperor sits on his throne. He's heard about this monk in the brown robe. But he doesn't think that he looks like much of a threat. 37-year-old Martin Luther, in the movie, if you've seen the one in the black and white, his eyes kind of pop out of his head as he stands in front of this very illustrious group of people. I think that tries to represent very appropriate terror. But he stands in front of these group of men, knowing that he is one against many, knowing that the Roman Catholic Church is the only church there is. There is one way, and it is their way. There is one truth, and it is their truth. And he is just one man. But not only has he found one thing that he didn't like about the Roman Catholic Church, he's come up with 95. It doesn't really look good for Martin Luther. But he stands in front of this group of people and says these words that I know you all have heard. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of scriptures or by the clearest reasoning, unless I am persuaded by means of the passages bound by the word of God, I cannot and I will not recant. For it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Now whether you watched the movie in black and white or whether you watched it in color, that famous statement kind of gives me chills especially when you know the rest of the story. You know what is at stake. You know what is going on in the big picture. God used Martin Luther to turn the world on its ear that day. There is a woodcut of Martin Luther that has him standing there in prayer with a halo over his head because the power that he had was not the power of man. It was a saintly power. But I have to tell you that Martin Luther was no saint. Martin Luther was a human being just like every one of us sitting here today. Martin Luther had the same emotions we have. There were times that he loved and there were times that he was angry and there were times that he wept. But Martin Luther was not a stranger to fear. 
The world that Martin Luther lived in was very, very different than our world in a lot of ways. The, mid, the Middle Ages, the medieval darkness and the superstitions created a very oppressive environment, but especially for children. You know, when our kids today are afraid of something, we as parents and as friends and as educators, we say, you guys can do it. Don't be afraid. It's not that hard. We can do it. We believe in you, right? We try to tell our kids that, that there is a power in them that God can give them to overcome. Not so much in the days of Martin Luther. When he was little, he had to get his food by going to doors and singing for people to give him something to eat. But he was a bright lad, and they, they put him in school. But school wasn't quite like our schools, you guys. It was pretty different because the headmaster was known for his authority and his power. And he would take one of the boys in the class and say, you, come here. And he would say, I have a job for you. You are to help me with this project. And the project was that that child had to kind of be an undercover spy. It was his job to go among the other boys to watch what they were doing and listening to what they were saying and keep notes. And then they would write, he would have to write down whenever they broke the rules. Then he would deliver that list to the headmaster and the headmaster would handle it from there. Rule breakers would be beaten. Unfortunately, the church at the time kind of had the same methodology. The church at the time promoted the idea that God was like the headmaster. He was powerful, he had authority, he was not to be questioned, and if you didn't do what he expected, there were consequences, cruel consequences. God held hell and damnation in his hands for all who would not obey. It was terrifying. When Martin Luther was little, he would lie down at night thinking of this ominous, terrifying God, and he would tremble in his bed because he knew that he couldn't get away from this God who was always watching out for him and was always going to catch whatever little thing he did wrong. It was a horrible fear for a child to have. But he was a strong-willed child, and he became the master of keeping the rules. He was meticulous, and he did everything he could to do it right, to make sure that he lived his life the way that God expected him to live. As he grew into adulthood, he kept that goal of keeping the rules as his primary goal in life. Later on, he said, if ever a monk could have obtained heaven by his monkish works, I should certainly have been entitled to it. If it had continued much longer, I should have carried my mortifications even to death. Imagine that kind of fear. But you do know the story, right? He is so afraid 
of God that he becomes a monk. And when he goes to the cloister, he finds something that he's never seen before. He finds a copy of the Bible in Latin. And he begins to read and study and hear things about God that he's never heard before. He reads the New Testament about Jesus. And he said, this is a whole different view than what I've been told all my life. And as he studies, Martin Luther develops a connection with Jesus himself. He still tries to figure out how this Jesus works with this church. And he spends the next few years of his life trying to make it balance. You know that he goes to Rome and that one of the things that are suggested for good Christians is to climb Pilate's staircase on your knees. I don't know my knees could do that. He was a younger man than I am. But he goes there and while he is climbing the steps and praying, you know he hears the voice. And what does the voice say? The just shall live by faith. And he, he's rather alarmed. He had studied it. He had read it in the book of Romans. But he gets up and he walks away and he thinks, what does this mean for me? But what is happening is the chains that had wrapped him so tight are gradually falling off. And Jesus is freeing Martin Luther from his fears. As he turns away and leaves Rome behind, he also leaves the Pope behind as he goes into another new territory. He goes back home and he starts studying even more. And in time, Martin Luther understands that he does not have to fear God at all because he understands the amazing love of Jesus. But his fears are not over. Martin Luther is completely surrounded by the superstitions and the darkness of his time. And Satan himself takes advantage of that. If you were Satan, wouldn't you want to stop Martin Luther? I mean, come on. This man has found the truth. He has found a relationship with Jesus. And Satan does everything he can to distract him, to discourage him, to depress him, and to stop him. You know, how, how many of you have been to Wartburg Castle in Germany? Anybody been here? Okay. The Wartburg is a great big fortress way up on a mountain with thick walls. And it is there that later in his life, Martin is taken for safety. When we were there several years ago, my husband and I took the tour. They walked us through. And the guide took us and showed us, you know, the different places in the castle. And then with very much reverence, he said, now we are going to go to the place where Martin Luther translated the New Testament into English. Almost like it was holy ground. So we walked into the small room and he said, this is where Martin Luther worked so diligently on the translation, copying by hand from the Latin into 
the German language. And he said while he was here, the devil himself came into this room. And Martin Luther said, I will have nothing to do with you, Satan. And he picked up his inkwell and he threw it at the wall. And the guide said, looking at that wall, you will see that stain, that black ink stain on the wall. That is evidence of the battle. Well, there's no doubt that Satan did not leave Martin Luther alone. But that story has kind of evolved into a legend of sorts. Later on in his life, Martin Luther says that he had driven the devil away with ink. But I don't think that's what he meant. I think this is what he meant. If you had written the whole Bible by hand, that would be a lot of ink. And nothing is more powerful to drive the devil away than this. So later in his life, as he learned to, to really grapple with the devil and to not be so afraid of him, yet other people came to him and said, how, how did you deal with the devil? And a young man particularly wrote him a letter and said, I can't get away from Satan. He is always on me. He is always reminding me of my sins. He is always tempting me, and I'm always falling how do I do this? And Martin responded with this letter. He said, I know this while of the devil. If he cannot break a person with his first attack, he tries by persevering to wear him out and weaken him until the person falls and confesses himself beaten. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? Oh, by no means. For I know one who has suffered and made a satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. Where he is, there I shall be also. It was Jesus who stood between Martin and Satan. And it was Jesus who took away his fear. But Satan was still working very hard to stop Martin Luther because he was continuing to study and he was continuing to teach. So his influence was spreading throughout the country. The more he studied and the more he celebrated his freedom from the horrible fears that had oppressed his whole life, the more he thought, I need to share this. I need to teach this. A living faith replaced the dead formalities that he had known since childhood and kindled in his heart a desire to show others that same freedom. About that time, the sale of indulgences became very rampant as the Pope was building St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. And people would believe that if they were to give a rather sizable donation 
their sins would be forgiven. And not just their sins, but the sins of the people they loved. That the sins of the people they loved would be forgiven too and everybody could go to heaven and everybody would live happily if they would just cough up the money. Martin Luther was absolutely repulsed because all of that was based on fear. The same fear he had been trying so hard to get away from. He, he could not stand for that to go on in people's minds, for them to think that they had to pay away their sins when Jesus provided grace, beautiful, amazing grace for free. So he began writing his thoughts on this, and he didn't have just one thought on the topic. He had 95. He sent those those 95 ideas out to other scholars and other leaders in the church. But one day he decided to to write them out and nail them onto the door of the church at Wittenberg. And when he did that, that was kind of like a frustrated Facebook post. And believe me, it went viral. Word of Martin Luther spread and his ideas spread and things began to really change. Martin was well aware of the power of the church that he was messing with. There was no church but the Catholic Church. It was the only game in town. And there was no truth but theirs. Mighty kings and emperors bowed before the Pope. Who was he to think he could stand up against such a powerful force? He continued to write. People continued to read. And more and more people supported what he was finding in Scripture. Interestingly, the pilgrimages to Rome by the people dropped. And the number of students enrolled in the University at Wittenberg grew. More and more people wanted to study these things that Martin Luther had discovered. He knew that the church needed to change. But Satan filled him with doubts. What if he did more damage to the church than he did good? What if he destroyed the message instead of helping people understand it? There was a lot of self-pity. He wondered why God had chosen him for this horrible job. He didn't ask for this. He struggled with the fact that maybe God isn't as good as I thought he was for him to put all this on me. Maybe he's not a good God. He suffered depression. He suffered anxiety. He knew that the possibility of being burned at the stake was not an empty threat. When Martin was finally called before the Diet at Worms to defend his position, he was asked to retract his writings. And he said, um, how about we talk about it tomorrow? And they said, okay, tomorrow. And that night was one of the most anguished nights in his life. He threw himself to the ground, completely terrified. He knew that he wasn't going to win. He knew that he couldn't win. And he begged for God to stand by his side. His prayer was, 
O almighty and everlasting God, how terrible is this world. Behold, it opens its mouth to swallow me up, and I have so little trust in you. But the cause is yours, and it is a righteous and eternal cause. O Lord, help me. Stand by me for your sake, and for your sake of your well-beloved Jesus Christ, who is my defense, my shield, and my strong tower. The next day, God answered Martin's prayers. God stood beside Martin and gave him the courage to stand. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Martin Luther had overcome his fear of the church the same way he had overcome his fear of God and his fear of Satan, all through the beautiful love and power of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Is it a sin to be afraid? Is that wrong? Is that evil? No. I hope you're all saying no. When God made us, he wove these emotions into our being, We feel sadness, we feel love, we feel fear. If you were walking through a dark forest in the middle of the night and a bear came out to get you and you had no fear, you would simply be dinner. (laughs) But fear can be a very good thing. Fear protects us. Fear helps us assess a situation. And fear can be a sign of great wisdom. But we must not let fear paralyze us. We must not let fear create inaction. And we must not let our fears control us. For we too are told to stand. In the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 6, it's a very familiar chapter to all of you. In that chapter, we are all called, not just the pastors, not just the conference workers, we are all called to be warriors in the great battle of spreading the gospel. And in that chapter, Paul talks about how we prepare for the battle. You know, I think sometimes we just kind of shrug it off because we've heard it since we were juniors. But I've talked to some of you who are in the military, and I know that you understand what it means to be in a battle on a whole different level than the rest of us do. You understand that a battle is about fear and about standing against your fears. When you read the book, the chapter in Ephesians, if you want to turn there, it's Ephesians 6, chapters 10 through 14. Normally, when we think of a battle, we think of the word fight, right? Battles are about fighting. But that word does not appear once in these these verses. Let me read them to you. And I want you to listen and say, okay, what is our battle plan supposed to be? If we're not supposed to fight, what are we supposed to do? Ephesians 6, 10 through 14. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore. What does Paul tell us to do? Stand. We are supposed to stand. Martin Luther was called to stand at a time in Earth's history that was pivotal. Jesus gave a fearful man the courage to stand for him against overwhelming opposition. But Jesus has never stopped calling his people to stand, ever. And we too are at a pivotal point in earth's histories. Jesus' last words to his disciples before he went back to heaven in Acts 1, he tells them that they will receive the power of the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses to the end of the earth. Last words are pretty important, right? That must have been pretty significant. Receive the Holy Spirit and be witnesses to the ends of the earth. As Adventists, we have repeated that for generations. The idea that we are living in the last days, right? But I want to ask you a very serious question. Do we really believe it? Are we, am I, are you, living like last day disciples? Or are we filled with fear? When we see human injustice, the oppression of those who are weaker than we are, or just in a common setting, when we see somebody be bullied or see somebody being mean, are we too afraid to step in and get involved? When our own lives are torn with devastating illness, or financial disaster, or broken relationships. And I know there are people in this congregation who battle those things right now. Are we too afraid of what is going to happen next to really remember that Jesus promised us that he would walk us through the valley of the shadow and out the other side? When we are convicted in our hearts that what the Bible says is true, do we fear disdain and judgment of others if we really would follow through with our convictions? When we see our precious young people walking out the back door of the church and not coming back, are we afraid to run after them because they might say something that we don't like? When we see our church torn apart over issues that take our focus off of spreading the gospel of Jesus to all the world, are we afraid to say, enough is enough, there's work to be done? Like Martin, 
the only way that we can face our fears is by moving closer to Jesus, being empowered by his Holy Spirit, by knowing him and having him fill us with a power that we do not have on our own. Because you know, we need courage too. That doesn't seem to be the strong suit for any of us. In the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, 6 and 7, our scripture reading from today, Paul tells young Timothy, he reminds him, to fan into flame the gift of God. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, most of us here today don't doubt the love of God like Martin Luther did. We all battle with our self-control in one way or another, if we're honest. But what really sticks out of me here is that we do not have the spirit of fear, but of power. Power. In the New Testament, two words are the basic words used for power. One is exousia, which means authority. The Pope had exousia. That is the authority. But this word is not that word. The power that is spoken of here is the word dunamis, which means miraculous power, exploding power, dynamite, dunamis. Powerful, powerful, miraculous things. That is what God has given us. If we are letting our fears control us, that is not of God. Because he has not given us a spirit of fear. He has given us power. The Holy Spirit is promised to each of us. But we must fan the flame. We must blow on the spark. We must get over our fear of the fire to ignite this promise that God has given us, the explosion of power that we need to do the work that he's called us to do. We have talked about finishing the work so wistfully ever since I can remember, ever since I was a little girl, and some of you are older than I am. All of us are called to stand, each and every one of us. I don't know what all of your situations are today, we all have a different path. We all hold different positions. And we all fight different battles. But we are all called to stand. And to stand for him. I have a friend who says, well, any dead fish can float downstream. But we're not called to be dead fish. We are called to be alive with this power of the Holy Spirit. To do the work that he has called us to do. It is time for us to connect with Jesus. We cannot let Satan use his weapon of fear to take us out of this battle. We need to receive what has been promised to us and let the Holy Spirit dispel our fears, whatever they are. Because, my friends, there is a vital work to be done. Like never before in Earth's history, 
Now is the time when God's children need to stand. I know you will recognize this next quote. If you don't know it, it's on your connection card. Read it. Say it with me. The greatest want in the world is the want of men and women. Men and women who will not be bought or sold. Men and women who in their inmost souls are true and honest. Men and women who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men and women whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole. Men and women who will what? What? Stand. Men and women who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. As I completed my sermon Thursday morning, my Apple Watch started jiggling. I thought, who's up so early to be sending me a message this early in the morning? And I was kind of right. My activity tracker read, time to stand, stand up and move a little. I had to smile. My Jesus has a sense of humor. (laughs) You may not wear an Apple Watch, but if you are one who loves Jesus, if you are one who believes that he is coming back and that he wants nothing more in all the universe than to have his children home, then it is our time to stand. It is our time to watch. It is time to put aside our fears and say like Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen.